Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. This is not only the interview of the day, the interview of the month, but indeed, I would suggest this is the conversation of the summer. It was long ago and far away where a radiologist from Mount Sinai came into my studios, threw on the ground some x-rays from Wuhan and said, Tom, this is serious. That is followed with medical people worldwide helping Bloomberg surveillance to understand this horrific pandemic. Now it is time for education. With leadership and the first founding partner at Verizon, Hans Vestberg joins us, their chairman, their chief executive officer, and we're thrilled that the woman that's making this up, Lisa Sherman of the Acclaim Ad Council, joins us uh, today. Hans, let me go to you first. Simply, you got on board before Apple, before Benioff at Salesforce, and said this matters. Why is Verizon that communicates, why is Verizon helping Lisa Sherman on messaging what we need to do on COVID. And this, as we will know, and as you mentioned in the beginning, this is an unheard of pandemic has hit so hard on this country and the rest of the world. And uh, of course, uh, one thing that is important, of course, the communication around it and, and raising the awareness uh, and the science uh, around the vaccine coming up right now. And we thought that when vaccine is coming out, we have a very big responsibility as a huge uh, employer and as a big company to be part of that communication about the awareness and, and also about the science around it, especially for the most vulnerable mm-hmm. in our society that hasn't gotten that information and that has been hit, most hit by this pandemic. So for us, it was pretty right. natural to be a founding partner of it. Lisa Sherman, my mother sold war bonds. This is a few wars ago, and that was started by the Ad Council in the 1940s. I grew up with only you can prevent forest fires, and now it's only you can prevent COVID. The Ad Council's been definitive in messaging America. How are you going to message education to get the courage to vaccinate in America? Well, first of all, Tom, thanks for having me. Uh, We're clearly dealing with the biggest public health crisis in our lifetime, and we fundamentally knew at the Ad Council that we had to launch the largest public public education effort in in our history. Um, So we've recently launched a massive uh, coordinated communications campaign that brings in every, every sector in the economy. And our focus is really on trying to get people to have confidence in the COVID-19 vaccines, which, you know, the fact that we have them uh, in such short order is is nothing short of, of heroic. But at the same time, you know, what we're seeing is high levels of vaccine hesitancy. Just the data, probably pretty current, about 50% of people right now have either begun the process of vaccination, have at least one of the shots, or or intend to get vaccinated. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got about 15% of the people who say they're never gonna get it. So our focus is really to to talk to the 35% of Americans who frankly are taking a wait and see attitude. Lisa, can you tell us about the nature of that 35%? In other words, is there a unifying characteristic of individuals in the United States who don't want to get the vaccine? 
you know, we've done a lot of work in trying to understand hesitancy, and it's pretty complicated and it's very nuanced. You know, it ranges from everything. People have a lot of questions and they just want answers to their questions. Some of it could be, you know, how did this happen so quickly? Did people trade off um, efficacy for speed? Others have long-standing concerns um, because of inequities, and in, especially in the Black and Hispanic communities, where there have been long-standing inequities in the healthcare community. So we see higher levels of hesitancy among Black and Hispanic uh, communities. We also have begun to see more hesitancy among conservatives. Um, these are folks who also have a lot of questions. Um, and really, uh, the common thread, I would say, Lisa, is that people don't want to be told what to do. They want the information. They want to be able to ask their questions. They want to feel empowered to make decisions yeah. for themselves and for their families. So we go from the public health side to the business side. And Hans, there's a question of mobility in cities, of traffic to retail stores. You see the nexus of all of this, both with mobile data as well as your retail stores. Are you seeing people materially increase mobility as vaccinations pick up? Or has it been slower than you would have otherwise expected? It was a time in May, April last year, and, and we measure this sometimes on how mobile people are, is how they move in, be, in between radio towers. And it was down in some of the most urban places 60 percent, meaning people moved 60 percent less. They were staying home. That mobility is slowly coming back, and we have seen a, a clear improvement the last couple of months here, where as it, the optimism are coming. But as we all know, uh, the optimism is in the end of the tunnel, so we just need to see that we get to this first. But clearly, we see more foot traffic in urban areas, more uh, mobility in urban areas right now. Lisa, I want to go back to the branding of all this. You did this at Viacom for years. The idea of a mind is a terrible thing to waste. The crying Indian ad campaign, which I remember clear as a day from Earth Day years and years ago. Can you just message now or do you need celebrities? Dolly Parton has had the biggest impact so far. Miss Parton was out there with her COVID confidence. Do you need celebrities so Hans Vestberg is happy with your program? Well, what I will say, and I mentioned it at the top, you know, trust is uh, at the core of hesitancy. And, and so I think what we have, what we know and believe is that not only is the messaging important, but the messenger is also critically important. Who are those trusted messengers that each of these hesitant groups really believe and trust and feel comfortable with? And so for us, the common thread, again, another common thread to Lisa's question, is that medical experts are at the forefront. They're the number one. People want to understand from right. their doctor, their nurses, pharmacists, <clears throat> have they taken it? And then there are amplifiers, those people that can allow, you know, sort of help. Well, Lisa, I, I don't mean to interrupt. Because of time, I think your observation is so, so important here. Franklin Graham set up a set of tents on Central Park outside Mount Sinai at the beginning of this. What do you need from the evangelical leadership away from the medical community to get evangelicals and conservative Republicans on board? What does the Ad Council need from Franklin Graham? Look, we've engaged broad-based faith, faith leaders who understand that this is not an either-or decision. You can have deep faith and believe that the vaccine can help you and, and free you to get back to life. Um, and and be and keep your family safe. Yeah, Hans. 
Hans, there's also a question about the faith in a better future, and we're looking at a way to track toward a modern era of tech prowess. And before we let you go, we have to ask about the infrastructure bill that Biden has put together and the 5G uh, build out in the United States. What's your impression of what's laid out in the proposal as it currently is? How much will it help get 5G rollout in a smooth and consistent way across the United States? As I think that 5G is an important piece of it, but I think that when we understand we have leapfrogged five to seven years when it comes to digitalization in this country, telehealth, remote learning and all of that, I think it's important to understand there's three pieces to solve the, the infra bill. Uh, accessibility of broadband, affordability, and usability. And all these three needs to play together in action to close the digital divide that we now open with this leapfrog with one of the most sustainable technologies, mobility, broadband, and cloud. So I think that's what we, what we are talking about and uh, talking to the administration about, that we need to think holistically in order to solve the problem. It's not only one thing, but clearly 5G is an important piece of it. We are rolling out quicker than we have ever done before and more than we've ever done before. And we've increased our CAPEX again. So this is an important piece for us. Hans Vetsberg, thank you so much for joining us today with Verizon and their leadership on this program. And Lisa Sherman, good luck with your program. To me, it's absolutely definitive as we go into the end of 2021. Ms. Sherman, with the Ad Council president and CEO. Catherine Mann here for a three-hour conversation. She is Citigroup uh, Global Chief Economist. Kathy Mann, I really want to talk about the locomotive here that is the U.S. Gita Gopinath talks about the divergences that are real. Are there any trains behind the locomotive, and what's a caboose? Well, you know, the U.S. is the locomotive. It's the one country that's growing faster than everyone else relative to its historical experience. <clears throat> so... It's the one that is going to be running a larger trade deficit uh, over the next year or so. Um, and virtually everyone else is uh, either running a smaller deficit or running a bigger surplus. So uh, the U.S. is back, back on track to be the locomotive. The problem is it's not quite as large as it used to be relative to the global economy. It's not quite as powerful a locomotive as it used to be. Uh, so it's going to be a challenge to get up the hill. And there's also a question of how much this really brings the rest of the world along with it. And that's one of the big disagreements, frankly, on Wall Street that I'm hearing, how much to just continue to bet on the U.S. versus the rest of the world uh, or to bet on other areas that will get carried along. What's your view on that based on a concept of a strengthening dollar, given the amount of dollar denominated debt out there? Well, so emerging markets are the ones who tend to be most at risk um, when we're talking about dollar denominated debt. But I think uh, it's important to think about the two factors that are relevant when thinking about an appreciation of the dollar. The first role is that it does, uh, and, it, and the stronger uh, U.S. economy that's associated with the stronger dollar, um, that is the trade channel, uh, which is an important channel, bringing in imports, helping economies to grow through that channel, relative to the concerns about dollar-denominated debt and the exposure that countries have when you have an appreciation of the dollar. So those two are in opposition to one another. What we have found in doing some work looking at the taper tantrum period relative to where we are now is that many more economies are in the position of gaining when the dollar uh, appreciates. Uh, because not only do they have dollar-denominated debt, but they also have dollar-denominated reserves. And so you have to consider that as well when thinking about the exposure on the financial side. 
So this uh, is an argument, perhaps, that the rest of the world can come along more than some people think. Is that your view yeah. here, that we're going to see an acceleration that picks up speed in the emerging markets, in perhaps Europe, perhaps in 2022 as the U.S. slows down? Well, so I think we have to consider not, you know, the U.S. is not the only uh, thing that's in is going to be positive for emerging markets. There are a lot of negative or downside risks. And, of course, that has to do with the, the vaccination uh, path. Um, and how soon those economies can get vaccinated and how soon they can get back on track with their uh, own internal uh, domestic demand. I mean, that's an important ingredient in the growth process for any economy is domestic demand. They can't entirely depend on export-led growth. Again, we have to remember the U.S. as a locomotive is not as strong a locomotive as it used to be, say, 20 years or 40 as years ago. As it used to be, and part of this, Catherine yeah. Mann, is whether we are a more open or less open economy. Where does the U.S. stand right now as an open economy, that dynamic to other nations? Well, you know, the, the globalization as a, as a general rule has been on the back foot for uh, more than a decade um, in terms of their slowing of uh, integration into the global economy. There's basically been a generalized slowdown in terms of that integration. And the U.S. is no exception from that. Uh, and of course, on the back of the last administration's approach to trade policy, which was to be very protectionist, that of course uh, made, made the U.S. less open. Uh, the general tenor of the debate is, is not towards openness. So uh, we have to be concerned about um, both the pol politics of, a, of, a, of a, an enlarging trade deficit that we, that we will see in the data. We have to worry about the politics of it, uh, leading to potentially even uh, more of a, a retrenchment in, in terms of globalization. Do we have to worry about debt sustainability? Mm. Uh, so debt sustainability, it's very much a, a, a question of which economies are going to be able to grow fast enough to put, them on, put themselves on a sustainable path. Uh, so there's an intimate relationship between domestic demand-led growth, export orientation for most of the world, uh, and debt sustainability. But in the longer term, of course, what really matters for debt sustainability is long-term capacity, uh, sort of what we call potential output. And that depends intimately on business investment. We've got to have business investment being catalyzed by the infrastructure programs that the U.S. is talking about, that Europe is talking about, that a number of countries are talking about in the context of their net zero commitments. Something that is climate oriented is going to require private sector investment. And that's a critical ingredient, mm -hmm. along with, of course, labor markets and, uh, and, and productivity growth. Catherine Mann, a few years ago at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, you had the privilege of working with Rudy Dornbush. He handed you yes. the Bible as you graduated from MIT. Tell us yep. about the Bible that the great Rudy Dornbush handed you. Right, so Rudy was one of my uh, thesis advisors, uh, Paul Krugman being the other, and what Rudy gave me, signed copy of uh, the first edition of Robert Mondell's International Economics. Um, and that really represents both, both Rudy's uh, his first edition, by the way, uh, Open Economy Macroeconomics, uh, which integrated goods and markets and asset markets in, in one place, you know, that uh, his Bible and then, of course, his mentor's Bible, meaning Robert Mundell's International Economics, those are really my Bibles today.
The continuity of this, Dr. Mann, is absolutely extraordinary. I can think of nowhere else where there's such a cadence as there is in international economics. What do we think today that Robert Mundell invented 50 years ago? Well, you know, the most uh, famous thing that we have been working with in the open economy that has his name on it is the Mundell-Fleming model, which put uh, three different markets together together the uh, sort of the IS curve, meaning the the investment savings uh, part of the economy, uh, the monetary policy, the so-called LM curve, and then the open economy, meaning balance of payments and how that uh, changed Mm -hmm. with regard to exchange rates and external demand. So um, those are the three markets that continue to be the important ones. Uh, How we measure them is different. How we think that they work together is different. But those still are the drivers of economic uh, performance. And today taken for granted and at the time foundationally and revolutionary uh, for Robert Mundell. Dr. Mann, thank you so much with Citigroup, their global chief economist, the laureate of Columbia at 88 years old. What we're gonna do here uh, is really frame where this equity market is. And you can do that by looking back decades. Long ago and far away on a Friday evening, Martin Zweig would sit across from Lou Rukeyser and he would quietly whisper, don't fight the Fed. She was at Zweig Avatar years ago, Lizanne Saunders, uh, out of Delaware, and of course has become one of our most important equity stock market voices across this nation. Lizanne Saunders joins us this morning from Charles uh, Schwab. Boy, I'll tell you, Lizanne, the money that's been uh, lost by people don't fight this Fed, they've gotten crushed, haven't they? Uh, it really is quite extraordinary. And it, a lot of people don't remember, since we're not all that past the one-year anniversary of the low, is that it was actually on March 23rd of 2020 that the Fed announced many of the backstop lending facilities they were putting in place specifically for the pandemic that kind of bridge over to help the Main Street side of the economy. And that just showed then, and I think we'll, we still are watching the power of the, the Fed's words, even if it predates uh, their specific actions. The consensus launch of earnings off of grimness a year ago is up 54% on earnings. What is the Lizanne Saunders run rate of actual earnings growth forward? Well, so 54 is for the second quarter, which, of course, the comp relative to the second quarter of last year is the easiest. First quarter consensus is is up 24, and you've got big leadership areas in terms of contributions at the sector level, consumer discretionary, financials, materials. So clearly that cyclical bias to where you're going to see the biggest uh, pops. Um, you know, longer term, uh, we, we've seen earnings growth significantly above GDP growth, obviously, but I think the story looking ahead will be one potentially about profit margins. And I think that's key to watch and listen to in this quarter's or first quarter earnings season, which begins imminently, is what do we hear from companies, um, not just about first quarter earnings, but guidance for the out earnings. Do more companies step up their pace of guidance? Because remember, you had a record number of companies withdrawing guidance altogether at the midpoint of last year but also what many of the price increases that we're seeing in this budding inflation, what that means for profit margins uh, as we look to 
into the next couple of quarters. And behind this uncertainty is a question of whether we're setting the bar too high or the bar too low. And just want to bring you this news from CNN uh, that President Biden wants all adults vaccinated or at least eligible to be vaccinated by April 19th. Again, bringing forward the deadline. Originally, it was May 1st. This idea of perhaps we set our expectations too low at the outset. When it comes to earning, Lizanne, are we setting our expectations too low or too high? I don't think we know the answer to that yet. The, the latest trends in terms of revisions, and ostensibly that's as, as analysts get more guidance, is for uh, first quarter, we're, we're up to 67% positive revisions versus negative revisions. So that trend is good, but we certainly may get to a point where you shift from last year's story of analysts when left basically to their own devices to try to gauge where uh, numbers were going to fall, ended up bearing on the side of setting the bar too low. And that's why we had a record beat rate in the second quarter, record beat rate in the third quarter. We had a strong beat rate in the fourth quarter. In the fourth quarter, we actually went back into positive territory in year-over-year growth terms. The question is, the enthusiasm associated with the reopening of the economy, the strength we're likely to see in GDP numbers, have analysts now been beholden enough that they're going to raise the bar? And there's just there's there's no precedent for the kind of environment and the nature of this crisis and the impact to earnings and visibility, even at this stage, regardless of what we know about herd immunity and vaccines. So I think it's it's still really really tricky to try to gauge where the bar is set relative to where companies are going to report. Lizanne, there's the wisdom of analysts and then there's the wisdom of markets. And right now, from what you can see in markets, are equity traders pricing in a greater proportion of beats than the equity analysts on Wall Street, the idea that they're actually foreseeing and pricing in something much more robust? Well, those companies that are providing guidance uh, are, are quite optimistic, and that's where you're seeing the upward revisions. I think analysts covering industries or companies where there's still that limited guidance. And you can think about the obvious areas, whether it's in leisure, hospitality, the services side of the economy, where there still isn't that visibility or base knowledge yet of what the reopening is going to look like. That's still a prospective thing. I think on the good side of the economy, I do worry that the estimate bar may have gotten up a little bit. I think the whole pent-up demand story, which has been driving optimism, I think is more valid on the services side of the economy than it is on the goods side of the economy, pretty much across the spectrum of durable goods, be it um, housing, autos, Mm -hmm. used cars, anything home improvement related, electronics. Um, I I actually think that there is a risk of pent-down demand, not so much pent-up demand, because we're well above pre-pandemic levels in those segments of the the economy. And I think there's too much extrapolating of that strength in the past year out into the future. Lizanne, one final question. What are we doing with our money? What does Schwab see that we're actually allocating out in 401ks? You know, it's been interesting, the, the the flows lately. They've definitely taken on a little bit more of a defensive posture, at least at the sub-asset class level. So the, the flows into utility uh, utilities are actually the strongest in the past months, which is quite extraordinary. And then prior hot areas like communication services and financials are on the lower end of the spectrum. But also at the broader asset class level, Definitely seeing a pickup in interest outside the U.S., so positive flows in the past month or so into parts of the rest of the world, particularly emerging markets, and actually a bit of outflows 
out of the domestic equity side. Mm-hmm. And we, we've had an out, uh, you know an overweight on d- developed international in, um, equities since the beginning of this year, and uh, we're seeing that in the flow data, at least in mm-hmm. the past month or two. Lizette Saunders, thank you so much. Chief Investment Strategist with Charles Schwab. Right now, on our domestic politics in America, we look northeast of St. Louis to Cardinals territory, moving up southeast of Springfield, and then on up somewhere in the vicinity of Chicago. It is a narrow district, the 13th Congressional District of Illinois, and the Republican Rodney Davis joins us uh, this morning. Congressman, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Do you need a six-lane highway from Taylorville into Springfield? What are you going to get out of the infrastructure bill? You know what? We already have four lanes between Taylorville and Springfield. It's great for for our community here and great for central Illinois. Um, You know, I just hope we get some bipartisanship out of the infrastructure bill. That's what I'm hoping for. When we get bipartisanship, we need to go to centrist Democrats who need to get reelected and centrist Republicans. Two cycles ago, you barely won uh, reelection. This time around, granted, you did better than ever. Are you a centrist Republican? And what is the common ground you have with Senator Manchin of West Virginia? Well, I am listed as the 13th most bipartisan member of the House, according to the Luger Center. Uh, Senator Manchin, uh, he's shown that he can be a force in the Senate. The problem we have right now with this infrastructure package and and bipartisanship was the message that ranking member Sam Graves and I and a small group of Republicans sent directly to the president, to the vice president, to Secretary Buttigieg in the Oval Office a few weeks ago, that we need bipartisanship. I just don't think Speaker Pelosi and Leader Schumer are going to allow the administration to go that route, though. Congressman, given your experience on the Committee uh, for Transportation, Infrastructure, Roads and Bridges, this is your purview. What does a bipartisan bill, a true bipartisan bill that could pass look like? How big is it and what does it focus on? Well, I, I don't like to get into debates about how much something could cost. Let's actually dedicate a bill towards rebuilding our roads and our bridges, our waterways, our airports, our locks and dams. If we can do that, you will have Republicans crawling all over each other to support well, a bill like that. The problem we're going to have, though, is I believe this infrastructure proposal is going to be nothing more than the Green New Deal disguised under a convenient infrastructure title that will dedicate a small amount towards roads, bridges, waterways, et cetera. It's very frustrating. You see in the proposal, the administration wants to spend $50 billion to stand up another agency within the Department of Commerce and $42 billion for all of the locks and dams, all of the waterways, all of the ports, and even airports in this country. That's not a proposal. Congressman, putting aside this particular proposal, let's say there was a bipartisan agreement on the infrastructure plans that you thought were necessary, and let's say it was a pretty expensive plan. Would you support raising corporate taxes in order to pay for it? Not at all. I think opening up the income tax code uh, to pay for infrastructure is the wrong way to go. Uh, There's a lot of talk from Secretary Buttigieg and others uh, who I I had uh, already enjoyed a good working relationship with the secretary um, talking about jobs being created with this package. I want to know how many jobs are going to be cost in the small businesses that are going to have to pay more in taxes coming out of a pandemic. That's the last thing we should be doing. 
Congressman Davis, I'm sure that you wanted the All-Star Game to be held uh, under the, the stadium there in the shadow of Stan Musial and St. Louis Cardinals. It went to the Rockies. I understand that. But it's the why the move of the All-Star Game on this debate in Georgia over the Voting Rights Act and what Georgia will do about its elections. Comment, please, on what the Republican response should be to find fairer elections. Well, first of all, I, I just wish some in, in corporate America would have read the bill in Georgia and would have seen the expansion of access to voting for all Georgians. We had problems in Fulton County run by Democrats where they had lines out the door. Um, this bill would open more precincts. And, and those are the types of issues that I, I certainly hope corporate America stays off of Twitter and starts actually looking at legislation. My biggest fear is that Democrats are going to try and act like H.R. 1 that passed only with a, a partisan roll call. And the only thing bipartisan about it was the Democrat opposition joining all Republicans. I think they're going to try to but turn that into the national version of Georgia's reforms, and that bill would be a disaster. Congressman, the Georgia distinction is removing the decision process of elections from the Secretary of State of Georgia and the executive branch over to legislative control. Legislative control is an ancient art form in your state of Illinois. Is that the trap we have and that our voting processes become a legislative process and not that of the executive branch? Well, we need to make sure that our states and our localities have control over their elections as the Constitution puts forth. The Democrats have tried now for two Congresses, and I've led the fight in introducing H.R. 1, which would nuclearize and expand it, uh, expand procedures like ballot harvesting that have already been corrupted with fraud. We didn't seat an elected Republican in North Carolina's 9th District in 2019 because one of his operatives used a fraudulent process by trying to create a ballot harvesting process in that district. And the unfortunate thing is he'll likely go to jail because of that. But if he was in California, what he did would have been perfectly legal. And that's wrong. Those are the types of policies that Democrats in Washington are trying to push forth. Also, yeah. they're trying to add $7.2 million in public money to their own campaigns. Well, and, and I don't want H.R. 1 to become the next rallying cry because it is not a voting rights bill at all. Congressman, part of what I'm hearing from you is sort of this decrying of an attempt at bipartisanship that absolutely fizzles and is now uh, very much a Democratic effort in the House and on the presidency. But a lot of people say that they just learned from prior administrations, including the Obama administration, that tried to do something on a bipartisan partisanship level and didn't get anything done. Just quickly, what's your response to that? Yeah, on, on uh, infrastructure, uh, because they failed miserably in what they proposed, you can't come up with a, a piece of legislation that you know is only going to appease one side and say, take it or leave it. Look at the last time we had a, a non-reauthorization infrastructure package. That was under the Obama administration with the Obama era era stimulus bill called ARA. That bill had about 6% of the funding dedicated towards infrastructure. Even the current Democrat chair of the Transportation Infrastructure Committee, Peter DeFazio, voted against that bill because it wasn't enough infrastructure. I see Democrats going down that exact same path. The proposal they laid forth is, is woefully underfunded when it comes to rebuilding our roads and bridges. And if that's what's going to happen, they're going to negotiate with the far left of their party and it's only going to get worse for jobs right. in our economy. 
Rodney Davis, that is the largest backyard I've seen in, I think, 30 years. I hope the kid that's mowing that lawn is not using a push mower. They're out on the John Deere golf cart or whatever, pushing it around. Rodney Davis, thank you so much. The congressman from the 13th District in Illinois. Right now, and to focus on China with Stephen Roach of Yale University, his book, The Next Asia, years and years ago, set the tone for essays on China. He followed it up with an important book on the dysfunction uh, that we have with China. And right now, folks, it is a new uh, dysfunction. Steve Ro- Stephen Roach, tell me about the new codependency of China with China and America. Is it the same as the old codependency? Well, the thing we know about codependency, Tom, um, whether it's human relationships or economic relationships, uh, is it's never constant. It reflects the tension that builds between uh, interpersonal, in this case, bilateral uh, uh, partners in uh, uh, trade and uh, economic uh, commerce. And, um, you know, China's changed its growth model. We're uncomfortable with that. Uh, We've raised a lot of other objections uh, about China's behavior in areas like uh, geostrategic strategy and human rights. Uh, and so we've taken a unilateral trade action against them in the Trump administration. And what my fear is, and I wrote about this recently, is that by not changing from Trump's policy, um, uh, President Biden's administration has been boxed in by a right. uh, really venomous politics <clears throat> and is afraid uh, to break out and try a new approach, and we need a new approach, or this relationship is going to go from bad to worse. Your essay in Project Syndicate was exceptionally important. I want to expand it from Boxed In with China to take off your book of years ago, Boxed In of the Next Asia, and the idea that it's not just about China, but it's about the Pacific Rim as well. To use a phrase from President Obama, what should be the pivot in strategy of the Biden administration? Well, the the pivot was uh, a part of the problem because it was <clears throat> clearly aimed back in the uh, Biden administration, excuse me, in the Obama administration of uh, putting uh, a lot of pressure on China, excluding China from what then was called uh, TPP. Uh, and um, that really pushed China to take a lot of, uh, I think, uh, destabilizing actions of its own uh, in the South China Sea, in the Belt and Road Initiative, and that then uh, culminated in the trade war that we're now trying to uh, find a way out of after four years of disaster in the Trump administration. Professor Roach, do you think that the infrastructure plan, as it's laid out as a way to increase some of the capacity of tech sectors and uh, the 5G build out in the United States, is an effective way to engage in this codependency that you talk about, perhaps get a little bit more independence for the United States? Well, we certainly need to uh, upgrade our infrastructure. A lot of people have been talking about that that for a number of years. I have to give um, the... um, uh, the, the creative side of the Biden administration, a lot of credit for expanding infrastructure into areas that we never uh, considered it, uh, at all uh, under the general uh, ilk of, uh, of what is infrastructure. Uh, but, uh, you know, the question arises, and you've debated it on the show, is uh, as noble as the objectives are, is anybody giving much consideration to how we pay for this? I mean, with interest rates 
at zero right now, uh, you can do anything you want, including um, uh, uh, not just infrastructure, but uh, <clears throat> all sorts of massive uh, social programs. But what happens if and when interest rates uh, start yeah. to go back to normal? And uh, that's the unanswered question right now in this debate. Steve, all of our listeners and viewers want to know what you think about asset bubble inflation. You were definitive on this at Morgan Stanley years ago of saying there's mandates of the Fed and one is to monitor asset bubbles. Is the Fed monitoring an asset bubble right now? Well, it's certainly monitoring it, but it's also doing a great job in creating it. Um, and so you've got uh, the combination of zero interest rates and massive liquidity injections uh, uh, spilling over into uh, financial markets. And, you know, you guys reported, you know, on your show uh, every day from, um, you know, SPACs um, to um, uh, Bitcoin uh, to now we have, I guess, a lot of froth in, in housing markets. Yeah. This has all the classic manifestations of a very frothy uh, environment. And, um, you know, the Fed uh, is, is basically... Um, uh, talking out of both sides of its mouth, if it's worried about asset bubbles, yet it is responsible for creating the conditions that are creating these bubbles at the same time. Although you will, uh, some people have said that the Fed policies and some of the fiscal sp spending that we've seen will lead to a very depreciated dollar, one that is highly uh, below where it is currently, that leads to some sort of inflationary push that is really detrimental to the country. We have seen the opposite this year, as we've seen the growth that has stemmed from some of these policies. Do you think that this is short-lived and that we will continue to see a tremendous dollar weakening, or do you think that this highlights the potential success of some of these programs? No, I, I've been one of the ones who have been outspoken about the, um, uh, the downward pressures coming on the dollar, Lisa. Um, you know, it was a call that was um, out of consensus in the second half of last year, and it worked, and it's not working uh, so far in 2021. But I think the combination of um, plunging domestic saving uh, a massive current account deficit, uh, a Fed that yeah. would normally respond to those um, uh, developments by tightening policy but won't, uh, that, that's going to continue to put further sharp downward pressure on the dollar. Uh, it's not working now, but I suspect it will well. work as we move through the year. Stephen Roach, thank you so much, with Yale uh, University. And of course, Stephen Roach, some would say, in helping with Ed Hyman to invent modern market economics at Morgan Stanley. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.